0: Listening to Three Mix Baby, a podcast about fertility, family, and genetics. I'm Janet Rupnow, a fertility counselor and author of 3Mix Baby. Welcome to the show. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here today with Amy, and Amy was willing to come on the show and talk about her experience with male factor infertility and the, that they had to go on to use a donor, and right now Amy is thirteen weeks pregnant. Congratulations, Amy! Thank you. And so I want to hear you know your story, and there's I know you had some questions specifically about talking to family and friends about donor conception, but before we get into that, uh, I really I think. It, You know, I have a passion for um, talking about male infertility and getting more resources for men because they're just overlooked. And we actually experienced male factor infertility and I didn't talk about it for so long because I was protecting my husband. And so I know that you can probably relate to that and what that feels like, um, that we as the women, even when it's our husband that is diagnosed with a medical condition that we do take on the the brunt of that diagnosis in a way, was Mm -hmm. that your experience as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, we really kept our infertility um, struggle pretty close to our chest for a long time, but now being pregnant and telling people about that exciting news and, and not being shy about saying that we had a hard time, and in some cases just openly saying that we did IVF, I think it feels as though as though the assumption is that the issue is likely with me, although most people don't ask, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really bother me. And I think the main reason why it doesn't really bother me that people assume that it's me is that it, it is me. like it's us. So without him, you know, whether it's him or it's me, it's us. And so it's our issue. And that's kind of just how I see it. Like I want a child with him. and if it, if it's not his biological baby, it's going to still be with him. So I just kind of see it as a joint issue that we've faced together.
0: Yeah. And it is, it's absolutely Mm -hmm. a couple's issue and we're starting to educate people more and more about that. So they know that it's not a female or a male problem. It's a Mm -hmm. couple's issue when there's a infertility diagnosis. And so yeah, that is true. There is assumptions that when it's taking longer than people think and they start to suspect, are they having trouble? They may mm-hmm. automatically think it's um, the woman. And I think most people do. Yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> and we carry the yeah. baby, so I guess it makes sense. So yeah. how did it affect your husband?
1: It, it wasn't great, to be honest. It takes a long time to kind of get from the first result of zero sperm on an analysis to... Mm-hmm. The final result, or at least it did for us. I see some of my counterparts in other parts of the world where it takes much longer to get the answers that they're looking for. but for us, we got um, the first sperm result of zero in February, and then by August of that year, we had gone through several sperm analyses, a biopsy, and then the full-blown surgery, and come to the final conclusion that there was nothing there. Mm. So I want to say the first negative results, it was more of a kind of in denial response for both of us, kind of hopefully optimistic that Mm -hmm. it was a bad day or there's got to be something there, even if it's not a lot as we can work with it. Um, And then kind of, as you make your way through the negative um, results, I think you kind of start bracing yourself while still maintaining optimism. Um, But there is some processing and accepting happening over the course of that journey, over the course of many negative results, Mm -hmm. leading up to the final test. But yeah, for him, it it brought on a lot of shame, mm-hmm. a lot of grief. He's not one to kind of openly communicate his emotions, so he definitely turned inwards, and his mood and his temperament changed. Um, he felt ashamed. Yeah. Um. I think he felt like I'd be better off without him, uh,
0: mm-hmm. which was really hard uh, to kind of see him experiencing that. Yeah, there's so much masculinity that's tied around sperm production and mm-hmm. so there's these narratives that we're trying to rewrite about what it is that makes a man and that's hard to do and i think that's that's internalized in men that they believe yeah. that they've heard that so much from our society so having no sperm which is a condition that's on the rise i don't know if you're yeah, familiar with there been articles written about it zero sperm and they believe it has to do with environmental Maybe toxins and things that, that mothers are eating when they're pregnant and possibly infecting their male babies
1: mm-hmm. this way.
0: And so there's nothing he could have done. He didn't He didn't do this. he didn't cause this. It's not his fault. I know in te- intellectually he knows all that. I'm sure it's just those scripts that you have to re- basically examine and then rewrite them for yourself. Because we don't have to take on what society tells us. We don't have to believe yeah. that to yeah. be true.
1: And and for us, we were lucky because we got the diagnosis of Sertoli cell-only syndrome, which okay. is kind of a specific um, diagnosis where there's an overgrowth of this particular cell called a Sertoli cell. Mm-hmm. Anyways, that's what leads to the lack of sperm production. So we have that answer. But I think okay. before kind of moving through all those... Kind of each step of the way, it was kind of like, did I drink too much as a teenager? Should I have smoked that joint? Should I like? There's so yeah. much doubt and self blame happening mm-hmm. over the course of that those many months. um yeah.
0: And he didn't have anybody to talk to
1: except me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, and he
0: didn't. He didn't really talk to you. It sounds like he kind of went more shut down. Yeah, Kept I kind of him.
1: make him talk to me mm-hmm. um, gently and patiently. Um, but yeah, sometimes if he reaches a point that he doesn't want to talk anymore, then he won't. And so it it definitely involved patience on my part because it's easy for me to think of how I might react if I was in his shoes, but I wasn't. So I I couldn't force him to move at my pace. I had to let him have his processing time and kind of meet him halfway on that. Makes sense.
0: And guys are generally behind women in terms of being ready for the next treatment, the next Mm -hmm. step in the process. Who mentioned donor conception first, the doctor, or did you both talk about it?
1: Well, uh, it probably came up with the doctor, but I think also over the course of kind of the subsequent negative tests, uh, our doctor definitely talked to us about kind of if we are successful in surgically retrieving sperm, like once we got to that point that the analyses were negative, I think the biopsy was negative at this point, she did speak to kind of the success rates. should sperm be found being quite grim. And so the seed was definitely planted. Um, I think if if sperm was found surgically, it's something we would have pursued just to kind of make sure we left no rock unturned. But For me, I didn't want to go into round after round of IVF of kind of an uphill, potentially impossible battle. So I was doing a little bit of research on the side about donor. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't something my husband was willing to talk about openly or consider openly until we reached that final negative surgery result. He didn't want to have to face that until we had to. Um, but actually on the drive home from the surgery, he said to me, so what do you want to do? And I felt like it was maybe a bit early (laughs) to suggest what my next step would be if it was up to me, which would have been proceeding with a donor. Mm -hmm. Um, but he kind of pulled the answer out of me. He said, no, I really want to know what you want to do. And I said, I want the opportunity to experience pregnancy with you, Mm -hmm. um, and so I would like to consider a donor. And he said, I agree. And we just from that point forward were on the same page. And mm-hmm. you know, the donor selection process, it's not easy. Like every every step has its challenges, but the second we finally kind of reached the end of that road with his sperm, then we were both on the same page and ready to move forward mm-hmm. almost immediately with the donor piece, which which I'm very lucky. I know not all couples kind of come to that agreement that mm-hmm. easily.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Sometimes I do need to come talk it through before moving on to yeah, But yeah, the, those months helped you, gave you lots of thinking time.
1: Yeah, it does. Yeah. It, it's not a, it's not a, well, for us, it wasn't, you know, all of a sudden we're shocked and it's there's zero chance. It was, we had a lot of time to kind of start thinking about the possibility of not having, um, his biological child or his biological contribution to our child. And so, um, Mm -hmm. that time was part of the healing process, even though we were still hopeful and optimistic, we were able to also be considering other options, I think.
0: Yeah. And did you initiate choosing a donor or did he, did you look at together?
1: We kind of just designed a system that worked for us. Uh, yeah. I think he was kind of overwhelmed by the options. Yeah. And I think he also felt almost even partly overwhelmed by the options and partly discouraged by the options in a, in the sense of like, none of these are me.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah.
1: our, our system was, I did a very kind of exhaustive search. We chose one um, donor bank that we just we explored a few, but we chose to just kind of focus on one. Um, mm-hmm. and I kind of applied various fil- filters and rank kind of donors who I would consider, um, as good mm-hmm. fits. And I chose a top four and I gave them the top four to him without my opinion. And his first choice was my first choice.
0: Great. That's helpful.
1: So I think that worked for, he didn't have to worry about narrowing in, he just got to choose kind of what I thought was the top. And I think we're usually in agreement. So that, that system worked for us. I think it made him more comfortable and it made me feel comfortable because I really did want to be thorough about things and explore all of our options.
0: Are you just more the thorough one in general of the two of you? He's probably more
1: thorough, but I think with this specific thing, I was, Mm -hmm. I just, it was probably just easier for him to work from some work consolidated list as opposed to kind of starting from scratch.
0: Okay. Yeah. When everyone is so different. And so it's most important that you couples do what works for them best. Mm -hmm. If, and it sounds like that worked out great for you guys. A lot of times, if there's an issue of feeling that I lost control. And so the one who doesn't, isn't able to contribute their genetics to their baby, if they're up for it, it sounds like he maybe wasn't, there was maybe too much for him, but if they are up for it, then you can, um, have them do be active in yeah. that selection process. Cause that gives them sometimes some people feel like that's a sense of control. They can gain back mm-hmm. other times guys or, you know, women would rather, you know, not do that. Maybe it's too painful or maybe it's just, it, it's, it's difficult. So it really just kind of look at yourself, your own situation and what, works best for you and what you need. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, like you did come up with a system. It's funny to talk to people who said we had spreadsheets and we had, you know, (laughs) and sometimes people look at profiles separately and then come together and bring their selections. And sometimes they sit side by side at the computer and scroll through. And, and so, yeah, that it, as far as feelings that can come up, it's common for feelings, all kinds of feelings to come up. You can have you know, just it feels uncomfortable. You can have feelings of jealousy or just like the inadequacy can come back up for both men and women mm-hmm. that they're thinking, dang it, like this guy or this woman can do, you know, something that I'm not able to. And so that can be a, a very difficult process mm-hmm. to go through. And I don't know that there's a lot of support out there for couples during that time. And so it's always good to hear what worked for you and then share that with others so those that are going through it can. You know, can um, can relate. Yeah, and
1: I think at first it does feel really discouraging because you kind of apply all of your filters, or you're looking at it through the lens of like you're looking for your partner, you're looking for the partner who is missing the genetic component to an extent, you know, in certain physical ways, but in other ways too, um, and you realize very quickly that that's not going to happen as you originally envisioned. Mm -hmm. You're not going to find like your doppelganger on there. So you have to kind of adjust your expectations and think about the bigger picture and what really
0: matters. So good for people to hear that. Mm -hmm. I think it's normal to go in thinking you're looking for a duplicate Mm -hmm. and, and you're right. It's not going to be that. And so there's probably just a whole process that he went through internally as you looked at that. Specific donor. Now, did that donor that you both chose end up working out?
1: Yeah, it was interesting actually. So, we had chosen, I had chosen a top three, and then I did one more sweep, I think, kind of a day or two before we were good. We had decided to make a decision, and a new donor had appeared, and that ended up being both of our first picks. So, it was this crazy timing. Hmm. Um, And we bought six vials of his sperm. And sure enough, we found out recently that he's retired, like there's no more donor samples available from him, which is a bit anxiety inducing in certain ways, but we have a vial left and we have a baby on the way and an embryo in the freezer. So um, we have some hope for a biological sibling. And if not, then we'll figure that out when we get there.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you know if he had successful live births from his previous donations?
1: We know there was successful pregnancy,
0: but I don't
1: know about live birth. I haven't logged into the system in a while. He seemed to have appeared and disappeared off of the registry very quickly, which either means he sold out really fast or maybe he didn't give as many samples. I have no idea what to expect in terms of donor siblings out in the universe, but I guess that, that will be something we'll find out maybe in, I don't know, 20 years. (laughs) Yeah. Is it,
0: no contact or semi-contact,
1: or it's open.
0: So when our children
1: are 18, they can seek out information if they would like to, and the donor made that choice.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Is I forgot to mention you're in Canada. Is the donor also in Canada?
1: I think they're in the States. Okay. Um, so we have, I think, only three approved banks in Canada. Mm-hmm. The banks here, I think, follow a little stricter guidelines and genetic testing and that kind of thing than some other countries from what I can tell because when I log in, I can see way more donors than I'm allowed to actually use. Like a little Canadian flag appears if they're certified for Canada. <laughs> so okay. I believe he's from the States.
0: Okay. You know, Canadian flag next to his name.
1: Well, he's, he was certified to be sold to a Canadian recipient like us. So okay. he went through, I guess, a more robust panel of tests. I don't know what exactly the, the Canadian rules are, but, but yeah, he was, I guess, eligible to be sold in Canada.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, there's so many different rules across countries. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's, that's one thing that's been fascinating is to hear from people that are in different countries and what the different rules are. Some countries, it's illegal To have known donation. Yeah. In in some countries, it's illegal for unknown donation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. interesting. And the agency offered that contact for you? Yeah, it's all through their system. So now that we're
1: pregnant, I actually should probably log back in and report that in the system, Mm -hmm. uh, in my account, which I will do. Um, And then I actually don't know the process for contact, but I think... Just within my login um, through their bank, uh, when our child or children are 18, then they have the ability to connect and receive information about the
0: donor um, okay. and connect with them. Is that a Canadian registry I mean, that is tracking the information?
1: Yeah, there's a Canadian kind of sub-bank to the main bank, which I believe is an American company. Um, I can't remember what it's called right now. But yeah, they house all of this information. Um, I guess I'm sure they hold on to it for indefinitely, I suppose, for whenever the the donor-conceived child wishes to access that information. Is this run by the government on any level or is this privately run? Uh, I want to say government involvement for sure.
0: Okay. I think. <laughs> yeah, that's how it is in the UK, is that yeah. the government has a, um, that it's called the HFEA, and mm-hmm. they house all the information. So then it can be there and stand the test of time. Mm-hmm. So that's a great, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then you don't have to worry about finding and searching and all of the unknowns. You have a place you can go, you know, you can get the information, it's there. Does that give you... A sense of comfort that you can get that information and it won't disappear, and you know, along with a clinic that maybe closes its doors someday. Yeah, I think it's nice because I guess
1: you know, you never know when you might want to look back and and check on a piece of information about the donor. But I think too for for our kids, for them to have that option. I know that you know, it's a very personal decision, but research is pretty clear on choosing a known or an open donor for the donor conceived child to have that option to connect with someone and not only you know nowadays you can find anyone you want but it's nice to have a donor who is open to being contacted so our children are perhaps less likely likely to be met with a door being slammed in the face if they choose to pursue that contact or more information so it's really something that feels so far away right now, and I haven't given it a whole lot of thought. But I do feel pleased that we chose an open donor. With that being mm-hmm. said, um, you know the donor pool seems humongous, but once you apply a few basic filters of things that um, you know are important to you, the pool does dwindle down. And so I, mm-hmm. I think if I'm being perfectly honest, if this if this donor, our top donor, had been an anonymous donor. I don't know that we would have given him up and gone with an open donor. Mm-hmm. So while I'm happy that he is open, I think it also worked out for us with a little bit of luck as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to say that I would have never considered choosing an anonymous cause that's not true. I would have chosen the best fit
0: and gone from there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So much can and will likely change in the future around this information that that the families can have access to or the child can have access to. Mm-hmm. And over time. So to make that decision, you know, just based on that alone. I think it's helpful to consider that. Yeah. And then also knowing that things will likely change. And probably I'm thinking move towards being more open mm-hmm. in general and, and hopefully looking at the rights of the child to know that information. But we don't know. I mean, we'll just see. Time will tell. Mm-hmm. So now that you're pregnant, now that you're um, 13 weeks, you said, what is on your mind now? What are you thinking or are there any concerns or questions you have?
1: I guess one of the questions is, so for us, we, like I said, kind of kept our infertility um, journey as well as the donor piece bottled up for a really long time. And we since earlier this year did tell an intimate circle of kind of mostly just immediate family, but a couple of others about our use of a donor. We are sharing more openly about infertility in general, but the donor piece we're keeping very intimate, at least for now. And I guess the thing that kind of I wonder about is how we're going to compartmentalize that on an ongoing basis. You know, our families know and are so supportive and and they even just tell us like, we don't even think about it. Like it's not, we, we accept it and it's It's not on the forefront of anyone's minds, but I wonder about kind of is the reason why we're keeping it rooted in in shame or is it just kind of just protecting our family at this stage and giving ourselves that sense of normalcy as we start our family and then kind of figuring out it, figuring it out as we go? I just want to make sure that we're not kind of bottling things up and creating maybe situations where we have slip ups in front of the wrong person or which I guess we learn as we go, but I guess how do we navigate when and how to share with kind of the next group of people, I suppose?
0: It's a good question. And I think it goes back to how you're feeling and how your husband's feeling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you get pregnant, all of the feelings don't just like transition into okay now we're in acceptance we're here and it takes time and there's actually stages of acceptance that you go through I outlined it in my book and how you know at first you're there's all the excitement over the pregnancy and you're really just focused on that and baby showers and the news and it's this that anxious excitement it's the time to really just enjoy Mm -hmm. and and then yeah you then you get into parenting and you might be exhausted and now you have um You just have things that may feel a little bit more irritating about the process, and that's kind of normal. And then you go into a separate phase. So you have there's like four different phases, and all the way going into toward acceptance, and it could take time for people, and that varies. Everyone's different, so it could take years to to go all the way through where you're at this place where you feel a hundred percent comfortable and will tell anybody that you feel like telling at any point. You know, Mm -hmm. and that's completely normal. And so it does unfold over time. The more you get comfortable with it, the more you're used to talking about it, it will be easier bit by bit. And just start practicing, you know, those slip-ups may not be all bad mm-hmm. because they may be opportunities for you to just adjust and go, ooh, how did that feel? You know, what are we good? Mm-hmm. You know, are we what's coming up for us now? What is our major concern? You know, some people concerned about what people are saying behind their backs and, or, you know, how family might treat their child differently. Mm -hmm. And so there's different concerns that come up and there's so very, you know, there's so many of them.
1: Yeah. I think for me too, it just feels like, kind of like you said, the talking behind your back I think, you know, saying, you know, I don't really care what other people think. That sounds great in theory. And in a lot of ways, I really don't. But for me, this just feels like a really personal and intimate piece of information about our life and our family and our journey. And I don't know if it belongs to everybody. And I just, you know, we have the acceptance and love of a lot of the people that matter the most. And then I kind of feel like as our children arrive in this world and as they grow up, if very young, like into the toddler age, then there are going to be other people who are very important to us, who are very involved in our children's lives and our lives, who I think will tell, you know, in those first few years of our, of our family, of our new family. So yeah, I just don't know if telling everyone right now and, and having that chatter, I don't know if it really adds value or if it kind of takes away from our from I guess what we're the joy we're experiencing right now. Um, yeah, I know that's not my husband's wish. He certainly doesn't want to share it, so we will not um, right now with mm-hmm. with more people, or certainly not with a wide range of people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it just feels like it belongs to us right now.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you're still getting used to it. You're still getting used to the idea, and how aren't uncertain about how you're going to feel and. There's so many unknowns right now. And so sharing it with those you trust and feel the most comfortable sharing with is, I think is a great start. It's you're still talking about it. It's not the secret that you've decided to to really bury into the depths of your Mm -hmm. psyche somewhere. This is, you know, you're you're still talking about it. But take your time and know that when you're ready, that you'll be able to talk about it more and more if you want. And it no, it doesn't belong to everybody. It's that difference between privacy and secrecy. Privacy being some things are just personal and it's your business. And if you're private people and that's your nature, then that's, it's, it can stay there. And then over time, as the people that do need to know for various reasons, you can, you know, share that information with them and then share, you know, your child has the ability to share with who they want to share with. Are you feeling comfortable about talking to your child about it initially?
1: Yeah, I am. Yeah. I think, um, you know, we're going to buy the kids books and we're going to talk about it with our baby and kind of get practicing early on. And it's, it's certainly part of our plan. And that's something we're going to be doing from the beginning.
0: And that'll help. That'll make it easier for the two of you Mm -hmm. to do that and just practice talking about it out loud and saying it, you know, in ways that feel positive because you'll set that tone of that foundation that's mostly happy and positive at that point. It's a one-way conversation. They're not talking back. And we, you know, we love talking to babies and mm-hmm. get that great feeling. So it's all this good energy and you just feel great about it. So it's all positive really. And that's such a powerful conditioning mm-hmm. for you. You know, mm-hmm. the more we talk about something in a positive way, the more we have positive associations with it.
1: So that's, that's
0: right. the the goal of it. And yeah, that it's just, it takes time. I wanted to come back to something I know we spoke of before um, we started recording, which was that, you know, perhaps feeling like certain people might treat your child differently. Mm -hmm. You know, that within, you know, if it's family members or, you know, friends, or is that, you know, is that a concern at all? It definitely was
1: particularly with regards to my husband's family And so, again, this goes back to kind of our choice to keep our infertility and our struggle and our use of a donor very private between just the two of us for quite a long time. And so, actually, when we first told my husband's family about our use of a donor, we had just gotten the call from our first IVF cycle that we had only one embryo. And I say only just because our hopes and expectations were set a lot higher than that. So that was a very heartbreaking result for me at the time. And I was at their house for lunch and I was just not able to manage my emotions. And we were, we were talking Mm -hmm. about when to tell them. And I just felt like now we're, we're, we're going to tell them now. Um, So we were able Mm -hmm. to kind of tell them about what eventually failed first IVF cycle. And along with that, Um, our choice to use a donor and so it was a lot of information at once to give to them and I think we had put it off for a long time because of that fear because partly because of my husband's maybe shame and embarrassment about telling his family that kind of he can't produce them a child kind of thing that's not not what I believe but I know that's how he felt and and perhaps how they would respond to us I think I definitely feared, especially his father, how he would respond. Mm -hmm. You know, my husband's the only son and, you know, just in certain cultures that carries more weight than others. And I just, Mm -hmm. I was afraid that our path would meet some resistance. Um, Yeah. And yeah, also too, kind of, will our children be considered as equal grandchildren as the next grandchild? And and that was definitely a fear. And I will say, now to give my in-laws some credit, they have never been anything but loving and supportive and unconditional towards us. And so now, in hindsight, I can recognize that perhaps some of our fears were not, you know, rational. I guess, and I think when I did a couple of therapy sessions kind of in the midst of our decision making around a donor, the therapist told me, you know, you often expect the worst case scenario and that's usually not what happens. You know, you prepare yourself for the absolute worst and you think about the worst that's going to happen, but far more likely than not, um, that's not the way it's going to be. And so the amount of love and acceptance that they poured onto us immediately was actually overwhelming. And it felt so good to get it off of our chest finally, mm-hmm. after kind of living with that fear and that concern. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, you know, since becoming pregnant, they have been so excited and his dad will say, "The like, how's my little mini me doing today? And it just makes me feel yeah. so good. Um, just yeah. because it just feels normal. It feels like they are just as excited as they would be no matter what path, you know, we could have adopted, we could have Mm -hmm. done a donor. We could have had our own biological child. And I truly feel that their excitement would be the same. And it just, Mm. it it really made me realize that we tend to fear far worse than what the reality is going to be. And I think part of that, you know, in terms of keeping it intimate for now, everyone we have told has been wonderful, which has been such a blessing a mm-hmm. part of me feels like if we kind of keep it intimate for now and share it with people who we feel comfortable comfortable with over kind mm-hmm. of the coming years, then mm-hmm. it's not going to change the way I see our fa- they see our family. Like their our family unit is going to be formed for them already and kind of the way they perceive us. Mm-hmm. and i I like the idea of people developing that perception of us and that their perception of my husband as a father without that donor piece necessarily tainting their view or modifying their view in any way. Mm-hmm. So I think that also guides our decision to share yeah. kind of very strategically and,
0: and thoughtfully. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Again, it goes back to you being comfortable Yeah. and feeling comfortable before you, you share that. And you're also being very tender with your husband and, um, you know, and it's just something that takes time. Also you being exposed to and having conversations with families like you help too. so, you know, you're not alone. So if, you, if your husband feels up to it, maybe getting on, on an online community where he doesn't have to share his identity, but he can talk with other guys that have the zero sperm diagnosis. I know for various I've told reasons. him this so many times.
1: I'm right now doing it for him, (laughs) but it's not the same. I think he should do it too.
0: (laughs) Well, he can do it totally anonymously. Like Mm -hmm. Just create a handle that no one would recognize and go on to Reddit. And there's a group um, called Male Infertility. Yeah. And um, I'm actually in it, (laughs) even though I'm not a guy. I'm in it because I'm getting information and doing informal research and um, trying to help the community. A lot of them are saying what they need is um, to talk to a male counselor and that makes complete sense that yeah. that would, they would feel more comfortable talking with a, a man. So yeah, that, that can be really helpful for him just so he knows he's not alone and there's nothing wrong with him. And that can help lift that, those feelings of shame that tend to just, when we don't speak them or communicate them or see that there has somebody else has them, they grow big inside of us. Like they take on their own, you know, they take on a life of their own. mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So giving it a voice can be helpful for guys, even if it's just, sometimes they're just sharing information. So it's not like they're necessarily getting into a lot of deep feelings, but they're, you know, they're asking questions and, Hey, did you experience this? And that just, even that sharing of information can be so helpful, as you know, just being in the infertility community.
1: Yeah. It's been on, amazing On for social me. media. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> really, really helpful. And it just, what a great platform because, you know, when I started doing this work 10 years ago, we didn't have social media. And so there was just, there were meetups and stuff for, through Resolve, but there was just, really nowhere for people to go and talk about this. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that the isolation is getting better and um, that there's opportunities at least for people to go and and talk it through. Definitely. I
1: hadn't even, honestly, interestingly enough, even in the current day and age, I didn't even look look at a trying to conceive or infertility account until after we had failed our third donor IUI. Like it just took me so long to to feel like things Mm -hmm. were bottling up and to, Mm -hmm. and to just think, Oh, what's out there. I haven't even thought about it. And then I thought I'm going to create an account. I have so much to say and so much pent up on my chest and on my heart at this point, we hadn't told anyone. It was just my husband and I going Mm -hmm. at it alone and he's a listener he's not always a communicator. So I just Mm -hmm. thought this is a great way for me to like offload. And then it just Went from there, it's honestly been like therapy for me. So
0: it's so great. So great. Support groups are have shown research shown that they're incredibly beneficial when women or men are going through infertility, but specifically women. Mm -hmm. Men, we're still trying to figure it out. There's not a lot of research done on it. Like I said, informal research. But what I'm wondering is what you know, what would help guys like your husband and you know, what types of things that they need when they're going through it, specifically using donors because some of the early research shows that there just might be if the guys need a little bit more help and psychologically and emotionally and all that, you know, socially around this issue and because they don't, aren't able to carry the baby, like in egg donation, the uh, non-genetic mom is able to carry the baby and, you know, biologically have that relationship and connection the men don't get that opportunity when they're using a donor, a Mm -hmm. sperm donor. And so how do we help bridge that gap for them? So we, so they feel included and they feel like they are part of this family just as much. And, you know, ways that I suggest for men are to early on when the baby's first born, it's really common for the mom to have the primary role of caretaking just because of breastfeeding and, and things like that. But I think it's really good for men to get involved right away and have that skin to skin. And I know I've seen some beautiful Instagram posts with men, um, you know, having the babies on their chest, right in the hospital and just have that, um, start that bond right away, change more diapers, do more of the feedings, you know, pump, pump, if you're going to breastfeed pump and let, and let dad feed the baby. So give him extra time in those early, early days. So he can form that immediate bond. Because when guys feel like they're not part of it, they kind of didn't maybe go on to work or do their own thing and they sort of separate from it and they don't feel as included. Mm-hmm. So getting them really involved, especially when you've had to use a sperm donor. So he's feeling p- part of it.
1: Yeah, I think those are all amazing ideas
0: and are
1: certainly um, ideas that we'll be implementing. And even, even to like now, it's still early, but you know, he'll, he'll talk to my tummy and touch it and lie on it. And I know that the baby can't hear anything yet, but in time they will. And I just, I, I want him to feel that connection now too, as much as possible. Like I'm going to get to feel the kicks and I'm feeling my body change and it's magical, but he doesn't get that chance. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I want him to kind of make as many connections as he can right now with the baby even though it, it does feel like more of a remote kind of concept or abstract concept but I want him to feel so connected when they arrive and exactly what you said just be so hands-on he's a really hands-on I know he'll be hands-on so
0: yeah and give him give him some control over certain other aspects of bringing your baby into this world whether it's you know, a lot of guys aren't interested in picking out the nursery stuff. That's not really their interest, but whatever mm-hmm. he might be interested in, like, yeah, if he's a, you know, if he's interested in the gadget part of baby equipment, like let him mm-hmm. go and let him go and have some fun with that. Like let him, wherever he wants to do and kind of be in control of with regard to preparing now for your baby, let him do that. For sure. he yeah. did lose a lot of control Yeah. in this process. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. That hopefully it doesn't mean you're going to have like sports or like hockey paraphernalia all over your nursery, right? You know, we know how we're doing our
1: nursery, and I know he's really excited about it. I'm sure he'll kind of help build the cupboard, or he'll 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 be he'll be involved. Like he was in our wedding; like he'll come along to everything. But I'll make most of the final decisions. But he'll be happy with them. Yeah, <laughs> we'll agree on them. We'll agree on them. Yes, um, yes. But um, but yeah, you know, I can say kind of how much time can help heal some of the pain. And I know that kind of new questions and new concerns and, and, you know, uncertainties are likely to arise as time goes on or as we kind of go through various milestones. But I will say seeing my husband's excitement about this baby and watching him light up at the ultrasound and watching him light up when he sees me and notices, you know, little changes to my body. Like he is Mm -hmm. so excited. And I know that, Mm -hmm. you know, while he probably still has some fears and some concerns about maybe what the baby might look like or, or what other people might think, or I'm not going to say he's completely free of that, but Mm -hmm. I could honestly say that I think we're over kind of probably one of the biggest humps so far in terms of his Mm -hmm. confidence and his excitement and his belief in his heart that this is his baby and he's exactly Mm -hmm. right it is just much just as much his as as they are mine so Mm -hmm. um yeah you kind of come a long way it doesn't feel like you're going to reach the end of the tunnel or you're going to make your way towards that light but you know I think a lot of times you really do
0: that's wonderful that's wonderful such a hopeful message for others that are going through this now and yeah, knowing that, that they're not alone and that there is hope. So, thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you would like to follow me for more content, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Jana Rucknow, LPC. And you can also grab a copy of my book, Three Makes Baby, on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and Target.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate it and share it with a friend if you like it. Have a great day.